Well, Merry Christmas. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, what joy it is to be together as your people, to be able to sing the songs of this season, to remember what you did in coming to become one of us and to redeem a broken and fallen humanity, us, to restore us to you and to one another, to bring life. And Lord, as we look in your word together, may you speak to us about what it means to really live out our new humanity and how we relate to one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wilbur and Betty were finally sitting down to talk about the church they'd been attending for a few months. When they had first checked out the first community Bapto-Lutherian Bible Church, <laughs> they liked what they saw, but they wanted to give it a few months and then evaluate it, and now was the time. So what do you think of the church now, Wilbur asked. Well, overall the worship and teaching are mostly okay. Not quite what we're used to, but they're okay. It makes me nervous when I see people going charismatic on us, <laughs> but at least it's only a few of them. And at least I'm not bored to death by the pastor's teaching. I just struggle with some of the people, answered Betty. Like who? asked Wilbur. Oh, just people. Like Mrs. Callan. She just seems so nosy always wanting to get into other people's business and then gossip about it. I wouldn't trust her with anything personal. <laughs> it wouldn't be long before the whole church would know. And that Mrs. Torrentino, she runs the Sunday school like her own private empire. Anytime I try to give her suggestions on how she could do it better, she just ignores me. I don't like her. Yeah, I hear you, responded Wilbur. Like Barry. Barry just talks too much. I try to avoid him at church, but it feels like he hunts me down and has to tell me all about his latest aches and pains. I can't stand to hear about one more test on his bowels. <laughs> Wilbur continued, and I'm concerned about what some of the people believe. Did you know that the Willoughbys actually are Democrats and they voted for Obama? Can you believe that? You're kidding, said Betty. That is scary. And along with that, I don't think very many of the women have a sound grasp of end times theology. There's just a lot of doctrinal confusion around here. Why don't more people at this church get it? Wilbur was thinking, I don't know. Maybe it's the elder's fault. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, responded Betty. There was silence for a moment. Then Betty summarized what they were both feeling. There are sure a lot of irritating people at this church. Maybe we should go somewhere else. Just a disclaimer, any resemblance to real people, living or dead, <laughs> is purely intentional. <laughs> we can all relate to Wilbur and Betty, can't we? It just seems so natural for us to come into a fellowship, a group of people, and start evaluating. Start pointing fingers and 
you know, what we're really doing is we're ending up being the judge of one another, trying to figure out what's, who's doing what's right and who isn't. And we come, become frustrated with the weaknesses and sins of the other people that are in the church or the fellowship we're involved with. So we end up being judges over them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, addressed this very issue when he said this. Serious Christians who were put in a community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian communal life should be. And they will be anxious to realize it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. Those who dream of this idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up their own law, and judge one another and even God accordingly. They act as if they have to create the Christian community and if their visionary, as if their visionary ideal binds the people together. Whatever does not go their way, they call a failure. Like Wilbur and Betty, we are looking for the ideal church, the ideal group, the ideal community, and so we enter in and we find, though, that we quickly get disillusioned because we find that churches are made up of people just like us <laughs> who are struggling with sin and stress and life and are overwhelmed and not doing it very well. And then we're supposed to live in community together. Is there a different way to look at church? Is there a different way to look at one another? Well, obviously, I think there is. <laughs> and I think this passage in Ephesians 4 gives us a beautiful, paints us a beautiful picture of what community is meant to be like and how we can begin to look at one another with different eyes. This passage, I think, brings us four, excuse me, three questions that I want to address this morning. Three questions that help us maybe change our perspective on how we view one another in our community together, in our relationships with one another. First question is this. Who is called to unity? Because this passage is really about unity. We're making a transition in the book of Ephesians this morning. The first three chapters are all about what God has done in giving us every spiritual blessing and changing us, creating a new humanity, a new community. Chapter 4 begins with a challenge to walk worthy according to the calling with which we have been called. How do we live this out? How do we live as this new humanity that God's created? And he begins... And I think significantly, he begins by saying, here's how you walk worthy. You walk in unity. So the first question about that unity is, who is called to unity? begins this way in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I exhort you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. My question, who is called to unity, is addressed here, I think, because he says, you who have been called, walk worthy according to the calling with which you have been called. Well, what's our calling? 
everything he said in chapters 1 through 3. Our calling is to be in relationship with the living God. But what we sometimes forget is we've been redeemed, we've been adopted, we've been restored to a relationship with God that was broken by our sin. What we often forget is that God's plan is that that restoration would be not just to relationship with Him, but to relationship with one another as well. In fact, that's just as much a part of the gospel. That God wants to restore relationships not just with Him, but with one another. So everyone who's been called is included in this call to unity, to walk worthy in unity, right? Everyone who's called. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to live in unity. There's no exceptions. We're all called into relationship with God and with one another. So you can't separate the two like some try to do. Some try to say, well, it's just me and God. We have our own relationship. People are too much of a pain to deal with. (laughs) So I'm just going to go it alone, me and God, and I'll just have minimum contact with other people. Folks, that is not true Christianity. That's a perverted, stunted view of Christianity because true Christianity means restored relationship with God and with one another. That is God's plan. And notice how Paul describes himself here. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord... Now, I had to ask myself, why does he call himself a prisoner? Why does he bring that out here? He's mentioned it before, at the beginning of chapter 3, for example, that he's a prisoner. But why emphasize it here when he's talking about unity? There may be several reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because he wants us to see that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad they are, no matter how much you're struggling in your life, financially, job-wise, emotionally, physically, or whatever, you too are called to unity. You might be locked in a jail cell, chained to the wall like Paul was in Rome, but you're still called to unity as much as you can to live in unity with one another. So he's emphasizing that no matter what our circumstances are, we are still called to walk worthy, to live in unity. Our trials don't exempt us from this call to walk worthy, to live in unity, to not use the excuse to be self-centered. So that's question number one. Who's called to unity? All of us. (laughs) Okay, question number two. How then do we live in unity? What does that mean, to live in unity? How do we live this out? You know, the human way, most of us, if we said, okay, gosh, look at the church. There's too many churches in Boise. Christians aren't really unified. There's too many denominations. There's Christians scattered all over. So how do we live in unity? Well, let's create an organization, an ecumenical organization where we all get together and let's make sure that we organize it so that we all get together. And that would be living out our unity. We try to organize, get together, form union, etc. Now let me say that's not a bad idea. But I don't believe that that's what Paul's talking about. In fact, as he goes on, that's not at all what he's talking about, trying to create some organizational union. Real spiritual unity goes far 
deeper than that. And in fact, he gives five qualities that he wants all of us as growing Christians to walk in, to live in, in these next verses. Let me read verses 2 and 3. Walk in a worthy, he says in verse 1, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love or bearing with one another in love, being diligent or being eager, working hard to preserve or guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we're going to look a little more closely at each of these, but kind of big picture here. If you look closely at these, and we will, every one of them really presupposes that we are going to have struggles with one another. They presuppose that people are sinful, that people are in process, that people are often irritating to be around, that there will be people in the fellowship that you won't naturally like. (laughs) There will be immature people, even in the body of Christ. I just say that because I think we need to never be surprised that being in relationship with other believers is kind of a pain. It's not easy. So how do we do it? Five qualities. First one he says is humility. Humility. Now it's good to put it in the historical context here. Humility is something that we might consider as positive, but it was shocking for Paul in the Greek and Roman world of the day to describe humility as something positive. You see, the Greeks and the Romans despised humility. Whenever they talked about humility, it was described as slaves who had no choice, who were forced to be humble and be underneath other people, to have lowliness of mind. It was a despised trait. It's never talked about in a positive light until Jesus Christ came along as the humble king who showed that the true heart of God is one who places himself under, who gives up his life, who lived as a servant to give himself away for the sake of others. And he showed the way for every believer since then that we are to live a life of humility with one another. You see, this is really critical in our relationships with one another because what's the opposite of humility? Pride, exactly. Pride. And pride is something that divides us. C.S. Lewis maybe said it best in his book, Mere Christianity, when he says this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. The vice I am talking of of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
And of course, pride is what leads us to divide and judge one another to, like Wilbur and Betty, to point fingers and judge one another and say, wow, you're, I don't like you because you're this way and I don't. That's pride. But humility recognizes that I'm just as much a sinner as you. I need God's grace and forgiveness just as much as you do. And therefore, I'm able to live by humility, a lowliness of mind that says, I shall set aside my interests for your sake. I choose to live a life of humility. C.S. Lewis, again, as he finishes this chapter on what he calls the great sin of pride, he describes humility and he says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He goes on to say, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. (laughs) Wonderful words, challenging words. But it helps us see that humility is a key quality for preserving, for living out our unity, right? Pride divides, humility bonds us together because we're all in the same boat. The second word that... Paul gives us the second quality that helps us live out our unity with one another is gentleness. Sometimes translated meekness. We think of this sometimes as weakness. But this word gentleness is not weakness. It's sometimes defined as strength under control. A strength that says, I do not have to demand my own rights. I don't have to force myself upon you. I'm able to treat you with gentleness because I understand that you, like me, are a person that's been wounded, that is valuable, but also vulnerable. And therefore, I will treat you and your soul with gentleness, with care. See, gentleness takes note of the person's soul and who they are, and treats them gently. There's a famous old psychology experiment we studied when I was back in college where they were trying to study how young baby monkeys, how they responded to different kinds of mothers they would create, and they created two different kinds. One was a wire mesh mother. Actually, there were two wire mesh mothers, but one had milk, and that's the only place that these baby monkeys could get food. The other wire mesh mother was covered in terry cloth. And so they observed, okay, where are the babies going to spend time? Where they get food or maybe where it's a little softer, a little more comfortable. What they discovered is that these baby monkeys clung 
all the time to the terry cloth mothers. They rubbed them, they held them, they stayed with them, they clung to them until they were starving. And then they'd run over, get food from the wire mesh mother, and then run back to the terry cloth mother as soon as they were done. I think that's a good challenge for us. <laughs> what kind of Christian am I? How do people experience me? Am I a wire mesh Christian that maybe brings truth to people, maybe tries to feed people, but I'm harsh and I drive them away? Or are we terry cloth Christians that express gentleness an understanding of people's woundedness and their vulnerability and their incredible value to our holy, wonderful, loving God. Am I a wire mesh or a terry cloth Christian? The third quality that Paul mentions is patience. <laughs> yeah, something we all hate to pray for, right? Because if you pray for patience, you know God will test you. So you can learn patience. What is patience? Well, in relationship to one another, patience, I think, is waiting for God to work in the other person's life and in your own life. Not pressuring or demanding or feeling like, I need to make something happen. I need to help this person get it. <laughs> I need to help them grow. I need to make them grow. You see, patience says... You know what? God is the one who causes growth in my life and in everybody else's life. And yes, I'll share truth in a loving way. Yes, I'll care for this person by helping them know what God says. But then I'll let God work in their lives. I will step back and be patient. Because God is the grower of people. It doesn't depend on me. You see how that quality along with the others we've talked about, humility and gentleness, would just break down some of those barriers we have in relationships with one another. To have that kind of patience, unlike Wilbur and Betty, who just gave up after a few months because people weren't getting it. But God calls us to be patient with one another. I see it in marriage counseling all the time, where one person just kind of has given up. They've lost patience. Why won't this spouse get it for whatever reason and it divides it's destructive when I was a fairly new believer I was part of a college ministry and our college pastor Steve gave me an opportunity to teach after I taught that time first time I'd ever taught before a group it was about 60 people I knew I'd done so poorly I was convinced I would never stand in front of a group of people and teach again. I pretty much made a vow I wouldn't do it. But Steve took me aside and said, you know, not bad. Um, <laughs> there's some things we can work on. <laughs> but he gave me more opportunities. And he was patient with me and encouraged me and gave me opportunities to grow I don't think I'd be standing before you today if Steve hadn't been patient with me. What a gift we can give one another by being patient with one another. 
The fourth quality that he mentions here that helps us live out our unity with one another is my translation uh, showing tolerance for one another in love. NIV is better, I think, bearing with one another. Because, at least in our current culture, the, the idea of tolerance has this idea of, you know what, what you do may be different from me, but it's equally as valid and... Your way is your way, my way is my way, and I'm totally tolerant of what you do. That's kind of the modern view of tolerance. That's not what Paul's talking about when he's talking about forbearing or bearing with one another. What this is really talking about is that it assumes that people are a pain. (laughs) They're irritating. They have sharp edges, and they poke us sometimes. They're hard to get along with. They're irritating. But this word means to forbear, to put up with. To say, unlike Wilbur did with Barry, to say, yeah, I I see that this person is really hard to be around for me, but I will not let that divide us. I will choose to stay in relationship. I will bear this person. I will not let their sins and their faults divide us. See, that's a wonderful, wonderful quality. How would Wilbur do that better with Barry, who's always coming up and chasing him down and talking about himself? Well, maybe it would be to say in his mind, you know, he really is (laughs) self-centered. But you know what? He's lonely. He's hurting. He's needy. Lord, how can I give him a taste of your love? How can I help him know your care? You see, notice that this is the only one that has a qualification at the end. It says, bearing with one another in love. Paul knows that our tendency might be to, oh yeah, I'll bear with him, all right. I'll grit my teeth. And I'll sit through another description of his latest test. No, Paul says no. We are to bear with one another in love, looking for ways to demonstrate Christ's love to this person. Again, do you see how this would begin to break down barriers in our relationships with each other and help us express the unity that God has given us as a gift? Final quality is given in verse 3, which is essentially a command where he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace or to make every effort to keep or guard the unity in the bond of peace. To keep peace between one another. How? By working at it. And he says, make every effort, make a huge effort, work hard to guard the unity that's already there. Do you get that? He doesn't say we need to create unity. He doesn't say it's something we produce. He said, he says, guard the unity. And that's a military term. It means, hey, our unity is under attack all the time, folks, from the evil one. And our job is to guard the unity we already have in Christ. To make every effort. What does this mean? What, is the, what are the implications of this? Well, number one, it's that unity is a gift from God. It's not something we have to create. You and I are unified already, and we'll find out more about that in a moment. Second implication is that to make it a reality in our lives to live out this unity 
and not destroy it takes great effort on our parts. He says, work hard to make sure nothing comes between you. Why is that? Because there's nothing that Satan would like better than to divide the body of Christ. There's nothing Satan would like better than to destroy Christian unity. And he wants us to divide over the kinds of music or the colors in the foyer or irritable habits or political leanings or whatever. Yeah, Satan would love to use any of those. And so God tells us, make every effort Work hard to let nothing like that divide you. Realize you are one in Him. So our job is to recognize our deeper unity and not let anything drive us apart or make us withdraw or keep us from loving each other. So the last question then is, what, what then really does unite us? How, what makes us one? Really, if it's not being part of an organization or whatever, what really does unite us as believers? And the simple answer, God does. God does. Because if you look in these next verses, which we're about to do, verses 4 through 6, there are seven ones mentioned there. Seven ways in which we are one, that every believer, every true believer is really one with every other believer. But it's all centered around the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and God the Father. He is what makes us one. He's created a oneness when we entered the family of God. Notice verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. These three center around the Spirit. There is only one Spirit. Now, the, think about this for a moment. When I came to Christ, I received the Spirit of God as a gift, as a pledge, as the very life of God in me to depend on. But what he's saying is someone else who accepts Christ doesn't receive like a different spirit. There's only one spirit. And so every believer is united with every other believer because we all are relying on exactly the same spirit. There's only one. He says we're one body. Like this body, you know, this is one body. And the circulatory system brings blood to every part of that body. Every part, though there's different parts, fingers, toes, knees, etc., all the different parts of my body, they're all fed by the circulatory system as the blood, the very life flows and brings life to every part of my body. What a picture of the Holy Spirit, that he flows through every one of us, bringing life to every one of us, but it's only one body, one spirit that does that. And therefore that one spirit, he says, brings one hope. That hope is that we will one day be with Christ and be like Christ. And the Spirit is the one who prompts us and gives us that hope. But every true believer has that same hope. Now, you might put it in different eschatology, if different end times teaching or whatever, but foundationally that's the hope of every believer that one day I'll be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I will be like 
my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So every believer is united in the fact we have the Spirit, we're part of one body, and we have the same hope. The next verse focuses on one Lord. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. What that says is that every true believer has exactly the same Lord. One master over every one of us. You see, we're all united because we all follow the same Lord Jesus. And that bonds us together because we are all under his leadership ultimately. No matter who we are, no matter what our background, we are all one because we follow one Lord. And he goes on to say, and one faith. What is the one faith? Now I understand that if you go to a church down the road or whatever, that you might have slight doctrinal differences on the edges. But one faith means we all rely on one basic set of truths to live out our Christian life, to enter into the kingdom of God and to live it out. And it's all based on who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, come, born as to the Virgin Mary. He died for us, rose again. We have life in Him as we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Just the basic truths about Jesus, that is one faith. There's just one faith. And every true believer throughout the entire world, no matter what language they speak or where they live, what kind of church they go to, if, if that's their faith, we're all united. We have the same faith. And then finally he says, around one Lord, he says there's one baptism. I don't think he's talking about water baptism because we could argue about that. You know, do you get sprinkled or should you get dunked or whatever? There's not unity on that, right? The word baptism in the Greek means to place, be placed into. I think what he's saying is more how baptism is used in Romans 6 and other places. It's how we were all placed into Christ, into the family of God. There's only one way that people can enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It's in him. We put our faith in Jesus who died for us. We receive the forgiveness of God, and that's how we enter in. That's how we're placed into Christ. And every true believer has that in unity with every other believer. And then he ends this whole section on what unites us with a wonderful picture in verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all, is there any place that God isn't? No. And we all have one Father that we follow, that we call Abba, Father, that we are learning to trust and walk with. We all have one loving Father who's sovereignly guiding our lives and working to draw us to himself. Everything's in his, his hands. You see, everything really important about us as believers, there's a lot of superficial stuff that we get irritated about or, you know, slight doctrinal differences, but every truly significant thing about you and I, we are one in because it's the Spirit of God in us. It's one Lord. It's one God and Father overall. So at the deepest level of who we are as human beings, God has united us as one. That's why Paul says hey, be diligent to guard the unity because it's a gift from God to enjoy. That's where we are united. That's true, authentic unity. 
deeper than likes or dislikes or irritating habits or superficial sins. And what that means is our approach to one another shouldn't be like Wilbur and Betty judging each other and categorizing people. But our approach to one another should be one of thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, that I get to be part of a body. Thank you for putting me with these people. And yeah, there are pains sometimes, but thank you that we are united in you and we're learning to love one another better. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, in his wonderful book, Life Together, puts it this way. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our community, because God has united us in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that life together with other Christians, not as those who make demands, but as those who thankfully receive. The wonderful gift of fellowship with one another. I just want to close with a little story I read this week and a tremendous little devotional, Streams in the Desert. It's an old devotional, but it tells the story of a man who would walk around with a little oil can. And everywhere he went, if he came to a squeaky gate, he'd oil it. Or if he came to a squeaky door, he'd oil it. Or if he came to a squeaky window, he'd oil it. People thought he was kind of weird. Why is this guy doing it? What's, what's he up to? What's he all about? Why is he walking around oiling everything? Here's the way the author describes the application. There are many lives that creak and grate harshly as they live day by day. Nothing goes right with them. They need lubricating with the oil of gladness, gentleness, or thoughtfulness, or humility. Bearing with one another. (laughs) Have you your own oil can with you? The oil of kindness has worn the sharp, hard edges off of many a sin-hardened life and left it soft and pliable and ready for the redeeming grace of the Savior. What a privilege we have to be able to bring the oil of love and goodness and unity to one another. Let's pray. Lord, what a challenging reminder this is that unity is a gift from you. Help us not to be like Wilbur and Betty, demanding, critical, condemning, but instead help us to spread the oil of your care and your love wherever we go. And especially this Christmas season when stress is high and people are especially hurting. May they experience your love through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.